Well, good morning, Bethel Baptist Church. It is so, so good to be here with you this morning. My family feels like this place is home uh, for us, and we just thank you for the warm welcome that we've received, and every time we come back, we are just grateful for the partnership that we have in the gospel. Thank you for your support in working with us to advance God's kingdom in Indonesia. This morning, I would like to preach on one of the Ten Commandments, the one that is most directly related to global missions. I wonder which commandment you would say that is. And don't look at the bulletin, because the bulletin gives it away. Okay, all my dramatic tension that I was building, you know, is already answered there in the bulletin. Um, but think about it. Which one of the Ten Commandments is most related to global missions? You may be aware that Jews, Catholics, Lutherans, Greek Orthodox, and Reformed Christians number the Ten Commandments slightly differently. And scholars debate about the best way to divide the text. Well, this morning we will examine what most Protestants call the Third Commandment, but which I would number as the second for reasons that I won't take time to explain now. And you can see it on the screen. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now, it is true that there is a 12-hour time difference between where we live in Indonesia and the Eastern time zone, and I'm still suffering a little bit from jet lag. So you would be forgiven for saying to yourself, what? You know, what, what is Alex saying? I may not be exactly clear on what this commandment means, but I'm pretty sure it doesn't have anything to do with missions. Well, what does this commandment mean? Many of you have probably heard what I was taught. This commandment forbids use, us using the name of God or the name of Jesus as a swear word. You go to the next slide. I remember working with a guy during a summer job who might hit his thumb with a hammer. And he would say, Jesus Christ. And he wasn't saying that as a prayer. So I told him not to do that. And it was based, of course, on my understanding of this commandment. However, even though this interpretation seemed fairly straightforward to me at the time, I must confess that I always was a little puzzled as to why this commandment would make it into God's top 10. And if my view is right, number two. When compared with commandments like, I don't know, do not murder or do not steal, this commandment seemed a little trivial. I wonder if anyone else has been bothered by that thought. Well, the common interpretation is 
a reasonable one. Leviticus chapter 24 tells the story of a young man who blasphemes the name and curses God. And the Lord commands that he be stoned to death. So God clearly takes this kind of cursing very seriously. Yet remember, the second commandment doesn't say, you shall not blaspheme the name of the Lord, but rather, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Are we sure that these two expressions mean the exact same thing? Another option is that this commandment prohibits swearing an oath by invoking God's name and then breaking that oath. That is, swearing falsely. Jeremiah 7, 9 lists other sins that are prohibited in the Ten Commandments. Next. But we may be wondering whether swearing falsely relates more closely to the commandment, you shall not bear false testimony, rather than what I'm calling the second commandment. About 20 years, when I, 20 years ago when I entered Wheaton College graduate school and learned more about the ancient Near East, I was taught that ancient people used the names of their gods in magic spells and incantations, essentially trying to manipulate the gods to do their bidding. So perhaps the second commandment is directed against this pagan practice. Many commentators interpret the commandment as a blanket prohibition against any misuse of God's name, whether by cursing, swearing falsely, using God's name in spells. But again, is this issue really central and important enough to become the second commandment? This morning, I want to propose a different interpretation of the name commandment to you. An interpretation that is not original to me, but that I was persuaded of by a scholar named Carmen Joy Imes. She made the second commandment the focus of her doctoral dissertation and has recently popularized her understanding in a book entitled Bearing God's Name. I would like to present her interpretation in this sermon and develop, develop it a bit on my own. So I have entitled my message this morning, Promoting God's Brand. And hopefully this title will make more sense as we go along. So let's take a closer look at this commandment. The various traditional interpretations are all based on the assumption that the verb translated take basically means speak and refers to verbal misuse of God's name. However, the Hebrew word translated by the English Standard Version as take in a translation tradition that was first established by the King James Version, the Hebrew verb is nasa. Now this is a common verb in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And its basic meaning is to lift, 
or to carry. As in, for example, to lift up one's eyes or to carry the ark. This Hebrew verb, nasah, outside of the second commandment, is rarely elsewhere translated as take, and never in a similar context. So this unusual translation decision should make us curious, if not suspicious. What does this word nasah mean? At the seminary in Indonesia where I teach, I tell my students that probably the most important tool they have for translating and interpreting the Bible is a concordance. And if you were to use a concordance to look up the other uses of the Hebrew verb nasah in the Bible, you would find, lo and behold, this verb can be found just a few chapters later in the book of Exodus. And in these occurrences, the verb also takes name as its object. Intriguing. So in chapter 28, God describes the garments to be worn by Aaron as the high priest of Israel. In particular, this first passage describes the ephod, which was like a sleeveless long shirt covering the torso. And on the shoulder pieces, of this ephod, there were to be two stones, the stones of remembrance, on which the 12 names of the sons of Israel were to be engraved. And the high priest was to bear, or nasah, their names before the Lord for remembrance. In other words, when the high priest was coming before the Lord to make atonement, he was to represent the 12 tribes of Israel by carrying, physically carrying their names before the Lord. Later in the chapter, we learn that the names of the tribes of Israel are also set in the breast piece and that Aaron was to symbolically bear their names upon his body to serve as a visual reminder of the people of Israel. Near the end of chapter 28, we also read about a golden plate that rested on Aaron's forehead on which was written, Holy to Yahweh. So in this case, the name of God that Aaron was to bear signified God's ownership of Aaron. As high priest, he belonged to Yahweh and was set apart for a special purpose that is dedicated to serve the Lord. So here is a drawing of what the high priest's garments might have looked like. Notice that the priests would bear or carry the names of the tribes of Israel on his shoulders and on his chest, and the name of Yahweh on his forehead. Based on these passages alone, we can begin to form a theory. What if the second commandment should be translated with carry or bear and refers to both aspects that we have just observed. 
God's ownership of Israel and Israel's role of representing God wherever they went. Now this interpretation would accord nicely not only with the basic and natural meaning of the verb nasah, but also with a massively important passage that is recorded just before the Ten Commandments in the book of Exodus. That is chapter 19. It says, You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. That is, Israel, you belong to me. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That is, you have been set apart to mediate knowledge of me, to make me known among the nations. Let's look for additional evidence that supports this interpretation. Many of you are probably familiar with Aaron's blessing in Numbers chapter 6. It's a familiar passage. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. This blessing is well known to many of us, but what verse comes next? Have you ever noticed verse 27? It says, So shall they, the priests of Israel, put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. In other words, in showing mercy and covenantal favor to the people of Israel, Yahweh has put his name upon them. Now they bear his name because it is on them wherever they go. This verse reiterates that receiving God's name, having the name of God placed on you, is a tremendous blessing and an incredible privilege. But it comes with great responsibilities also. Bearing God's name symbolized God's ownership of Israel, that they belonged to him, plus representation. Israel was called to show the nations what God was really like. Now this all made sense in the ancient world, next, in which slaves were often tattooed with their owner's name, either on their forehead or on their hand or on their forearm. Temple servants were even branded with the name or symbol of the God that, to whom they belonged. And we can understand this. Even today, we write our names on lunch bags or on water bottles. Why? To show that those things belong to us. Yet Israel was not taken to be God's special possession for no purpose. They are slave, they are saved and blessed and branded with God's name to make that name known throughout the earth. Perhaps you are not yet convinced of my interpretation. Is there any more evidence? Well, consider Deuteronomy chapter 28 
which weaves the same web of themes of blessing, covenant, mission, and the name of God. It says, The Lord will command the blessing on you in your barns and in all that you undertake. And he will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. The Lord will establish you as a people holy to himself, as he has sworn to you, if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. And all the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord, and they shall be afraid of you. And the Lord will make you abundant in prosperity in the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your livestock and the fruit of your ground within the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give you. A more literal translation of one phrase might make the meaning a little clearer. The name of Yahweh is proclaimed over you. Now the name of God is invoked or spoken over the people of Israel so that it is on them. Therefore, the people become holy to God and blessed. Now remember, the second commandment is written negatively, as are most of the other Ten Commandments. It prohibits bearing the name of God in vain, that is, uselessly or to no good purpose. So in other words, if God's brand of ownership is written on you, if you are holy to him, if you are called to represent him in the world to show the nations what he is like, don't make God look bad. Don't fail in your mission. Because if you do, then you will bring dishonor to God's name rather than glory and honor. Leviticus chapter 22 describes what will happen if Israel bears God's name in vain. So you shall keep my commandments and do them. I am the Lord. And you shall not profane my holy name that I may be sanctified among the people of Israel. If you bear the Lord's name in vain, you will profane it. You will drag God's name through the mud. God's reputation in the world will be damaged by your words and your actions rather than lifted high. So how might we express the second commandment in modern terms? Please allow me to go on a bit of a tangent here. I see that some of you are wearing t-shirts this morning. Well, did you know 100 years ago, no one wore t-shirts? Isn't that strange to think about? T-shirts are a modern invention. After World War II, white t-shirts, plain white t-shirts, especially worn by men, became cool as a sort of symbol of rebellion. Yet it wasn't until the 1960s, when so many other things were changing in American society, that graphic t-shirts began to become popular. Companies only began printing their logos on t-shirts later, in the 1980s and 1990s when I was a kid. 
And one of the leaders in this field was Nike. One of the most successful sports marketing campaigns of all time was Gatorade's commercial, Be Like Mike. Do you remember this? I know I'm dating myself when I'm saying this because this commercial debuted in 1991, but I remember it, maybe some of you do too. There was a song that went, like Mike, if I could be like Mike, I wanna be, I wanna be like Mike. Is anyone with me here? Okay, thank you, thank you. (laughs) Yet it was really Nike that ran with this concept. Right? They sold millions of Air Jordan basketball sneakers based on the idea that you could be just like your favorite sports star by wearing the same shoes that he did. I understand that Ben Affleck has just made a movie about Nike and Michael Jordan. It's a fascinating history because it changed the history of advertising forever. The ingenuity of Gatorade and Nike's campaigns was that by buying their products, you could identify yourself with Michael Jordan. And you could join a community of Jordan fans and strive yourself to emulate his athletic skills. And all at the same time, promote the Nike or Gatorade brands. It was genius. So why do I mention all of this? Because maybe this is the best way to conceive of the second commandment in contemporary terms. Brothers and sisters, we are brand ambassadors for God. I don't mean this in a crass way at all, but we are God's marketing campaign in this world. Our lives are intended to display his greatness. We are constantly wearing the Yahweh logo and our message should be like God. If I could be like God. We are to promote God's brand throughout the world. You see, all people without exception are commercials for something. Our words and our actions promote the things that we value. Our lives are like a sign pointing to something else saying, this is worthy of my devotion. So the question we need to ask ourselves this morning as followers of the living God and bearers of the divine name is, what message do our lives speak? What are we proclaiming about God? Are you a good advertisement for God? Are you bearing God's name well? Or are you bearing God's name in vain? As I mentioned before, the first and second commandments are written negatively. You shall have no other gods before me or make a carved image or bow down before it. And you shall not bear the name of the Lord your God in vain. Carmen Imes numbers the Ten Commandments, as I do, and she summarizes the positive inverse of the first two commandments in this way. 
Worship only Yahweh, the first commandment. Represent him well, the second commandment. She then writes this about the first two commandments. These two commandments bring the covenant relationship into alignment. Yahweh is the only God worthy of worship. Israel must see itself as belonging to him, representing him to the world. To bear his name in vain would be to enter into this covenant relationship with him, but to live no differently than the surrounding pagans. Israel's fate in the succeeding narratives always comes down to breaking these two commandments, either failing to worship Yahweh alone or failing to represent him well. The rest of the Ten Commandments flow from the covenant formula established by the first two commandments, fleshing out what covenant faithfulness looks like in every conceivable area of life. Work, family, conflict, marriage, property, and reputation. Then in her book, Imes makes what I think is a brilliant suggestion. That the first two commandments are reflected in what scholars call the covenant formula. Let me explain. Throughout scripture, we find similar phrases describing the relationship between God and his people. Let me share just three examples. Exodus 6-7 says, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. 2 Samuel 7, 24, you establish for yourself your people Israel to be your people and you, O Lord, became their God. Jeremiah 7, 23, I will be your God and you shall be my people. You probably recognize this formula, right? There are similar phases throughout scripture even into the book of Revelation chapter 21. And Imes views this covenant formula as a re-expression of the first and second commandments. I will be your God. That is, you will have no other gods before me. Worship only Yahweh. And you shall be my people. That is, do not bear his name in vain. Represent him well. You have been chosen and set apart as a holy people to make God's name known throughout the earth. Now, if Imes is right, and I think she is, then the implication is that the Ten Commandments at the head of the entire Mosaic Law are built on an invitation to relationship. The first two and fundamental commandments are God's words to Israel and you to enter into a committed, exclusive, loving relationship in which the living creator and almighty God becomes your God and you become a member of his holy people. The Ten Commandments are not a dull and dry set of rules to follow. They're not to be viewed as an ancient monument to be displayed in 
courthouses alone like some relic of a legalistic past. No. This is God's intimate call to you to be joined by covenant in relationship with him, to walk with him in the path of true human flourishing and life, to take upon yourself the most important mission in history by bearing his name, and to know that God will be with you, empowering you to fulfill it even to the end of the age. Brothers and sisters, the cry of our heart this morning should be, you, O God, are mine, and I am yours. Amen? That is what the first and second commandments are all about. Now, up to this point, I've been speaking rather freely about us as new covenant believers fulfilling the Ten Commandments which were originally given to the nation of Israel. Is there any evidence in the New Testament for the interpretation I have proposed? I think there is, and I could show you several passages. But let me read just one. You've probably heard of these two verses before without realizing their connection with the second commandment. It's the commissioning of the apostle Paul says, But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, for Saul, or Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to what? To carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Paul, as a missionary to the Gentiles, was chosen to carry God's name. And notice the dramatic shift in how he was meant to do this. If you recall in Deuteronomy chapter 28, the people of Israel would be known among the nations by their prosperity and their military strength. The nations would be afraid of them. Paul and the new covenant people of God will be primarily known by their faithfulness in suffering. They will pay a price, like Jesus did, for carrying God's name. Chris mentioned a picture from eight years ago. I have one that some of you have seen. This was my family a little more than eight years ago. We are standing on the porch of the farmhouse there ready to be sent out by this church with a mission to equip Christian leaders in Indonesia for the flourishing of the church and the spread of the gospel to all peoples. Our mission has not changed. We desire for the gospel to be preached in Indonesia where Christ has not yet been named. Among the 240 unreached people groups and 194 million Indonesians who have no viable access to the gospel yet because we believe that there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name 
under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. We equip Christian leaders primarily through the international school in our town and the Evangelical Theological Seminary of Indonesia where I serve as a professor of New Testament. We also support and encourage a number of Indonesian church planters. And you here at Bethel Baptist Church are a key part of this work. You are partners with us and Hannah McGarvey and Paulus Dimas and thousands of others in carrying the name of God to every island and every tribe in the country of Indonesia. And we pray that we do not bear the name of God in vain, but that we bear it well. Well, I realize that I have given you what may be a new interpretation of the name commandment and maybe a lot to consider. But let me close with a few words of personal application related to this commandment. First, let's soberly recognize the awesome privilege and grave responsibility it is to bear God's name. We have the job of making God's character and his salvation known in this world. There's no one else, brothers and sisters. We are it. We are plan A, and there is no plan B. Our lives ought to be commercials for the gospel. And woe to us if we bear the name of God in vain. You know, we have a term, nominal Christians, right? Christians in name only. In Indonesian, Indonesia, these Christians are called Orang Kristen KTP, which means that they have a government ID card that identifies them as Christian because everyone's religion is printed on their ID card in Indonesia. But even though they carry the identity of Christian on their ID card, these people, their lives don't match their profession of faith. But you realize, don't you, that if you bear the name of God, if you call yourself a Christian, that's no light thing. Because if you bear, in one sense, God's name, but you live like everybody else, you are bringing down on yourself the wrath of God. My own father is not a believer. And one of the primary reasons why, in his words, that he doesn't believe is that he is bothered by the hypocrisy that he sees in the evangelical church. And Christian hypocrisy should bother us even more so. But you know who's bothered most of all by Christian hypocrisy? God. God is jealous for his name, jealous for his glory, and he will not remain passive when his name is dragged through the mud. 
by those who claim to know him. Judgment is coming, and God will vindicate his great name upon this earth. That reality should put a healthy fear of God in our hearts. But we need to remember, secondly, brothers and sisters, that bearing God's name well doesn't necessitate that we live perfectly. Only God alone is without sin. So as followers of God, we should be known as a people who are quick to confess our sin, to admit when we are wrong, to humble ourselves and seek forgiveness. We of all people should be known as a broken and contrite people whose lives point to the only one who is perfectly good and with whom we might find true forgiveness of sins. You know, we live in a day when our leaders, politicians, celebrities, never admit when they have been wrong. They never confess their mistakes, shortcomings, or sins in a sincere way. There's always some kind of spin or rationale or excuses that are thrown up. And even when they do apologize, their apologies seem fake and self-serving. Likewise, we live in a day of social media when there's tremendous pressure to present yourself and your family as perfect and happy all the time. If you only looked at someone else's Facebook or Instagram feed, their posts, you might conclude that they're always doing cool stuff, constantly laughing with their cool friends or enjoying their adorable kids. No one posts moments of humiliation, shame, or failure, unless they can spin it in some way into a kind of self-deprecating joke that actually makes them look hilarious and witty. Well, friends, to represent God well, to bear his name, we don't have to project an image to the world that we have it all together. We don't have to airbrush our lives and our families so that we pretend to be some kind of flawless commercial. Doing that would only promote ourselves, not promote God and his grace. In a world that supposedly values authenticity, but I think is much more about image management, we can be real. We can be vulnerable. We don't have anything to hide. We can let people see our brokenness. And we can be honest about our sin and rejoice in God's mercy in Jesus. Because when we do so, our lives become advertisements for the gospel. And third and finally, let's recognize the missional implications of the second commandment. 
The purpose of this church, Bethel Baptist Church, is to reflect God's infinite worth through Christ for the glory of his name and the good of all peoples. That's the second commandment. That is bearing God's name in a worthy manner, whether we live in Wilmington, Delaware, or Central Java, Indonesia. We are all engaged in the glorious mission of making God known to a dark and desperate world. So, dear brothers and sisters, let us raise our banners and carry the name of our God high and with pride wherever he takes us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are so conscious that in ourselves, we are not worthy to bear your name, to have your blood-bought name written on each one of us to be redeemed. But we're so thankful, God, for your great love and the death of your Son, Jesus, by which you have made us worthy by which we can be cleansed and forgiven and by which we can be set on this glorious task of making your name known in this world. What a privilege that we have. And I thank you for this church, Lord, which takes that mission very seriously. And I pray, God, that we would be a body of believers that's not known for our own greatness, but known for our humility and our brokenness and known by the grace of God that you, God, are great and that you are transforming us by that grace that we might bear your name well in this world. Would you help us, God, by your Spirit to do that very thing, even this week, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.